2: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Networks, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Bhakti Sringarpure, who wrote Cold War Assemblages, Decolonization to Digital. This is part of a series from Rutledge Press called Studies in Cultures of the Global Cold War, and I'm going to ask Bhakti a little bit about the series as well as we talk about her book. But first, I'd like to welcome Bhakti Shringarpure to the New Books Network and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this project.
1: Thank you so much, Lily, for having me. Uh, thanks to the New Books Podcast. Um, so, uh, well, I am currently at the University of Connecticut and I also run, I teach in the English uh, department. I teach courses in postcolonial literature and theory and also in gender studies Um, and I I have run for the past few years an online magazine called Warscapes. So it's a kind of combination of my academic life, but then this kind of outside of academia life that has led me to this book in a way, or some of the insights uh, in this book. Um, I can can start by telling you how I came to the project. So essentially, uh, you know, I hadn't yet extinguished parts of me that were uh, from, from graduate school. And at that time, I had, uh, I had been working on the idea of post-colonial civil wars. Uh, why is it that when colonialism ends, uh, these kind of new nations or new countries are immediately kind of enveloped by internecine civil violence? Uh, and primarily, I was looking at a lot of um, lots of production literary production on the subject uh tons and tons of novels that had somehow uh never really entered the canon of postcolonial studies um, and I worked on this quite a bit in grad school in my dissertation and so on. But when I started working and was contemplating um you know a book. I realized that the essential component that I had forgotten to really think about uh, with the civil violence, with the way in which uh, canons, literary canons, cultural canons are formed, was uh, the immense um, grip of the Cold War upon the post-colonial world. Uh, Because at the end of the day, when you think about the timeline of the Cold War and the timeline of various decolonizations across the planet, They are actually exactly the same. So it started by kind of interrogating um, what has been taking place um, at this time uh, and ways in which the Cold War uh, really was a hot war um, in many of these post colonies, where all the proxy wars were fought, places like Angola, Congo, um, Algeria, and so on, where things, where, where the Cold War was highly interventionist uh and ha- has produced a kind of violence that is still to die out at the end of the day so the book then came out of an attempt to kind of place these ideas um place these ideas in motion but also juxtapose them with one another and um one of the issues i found is that studies of the cold war always um emphasized either US and USSR uh, and, you know, the sort of histories of the USS, USSR and US uh, uh, without really emphasizing um, what was happening in the post-colony, so to speak. So, and then in the past decade or so, there has been a lot more thinking on the subject. So I've sort of joined the kind of bandwagon of a new Cold War studies field, um, which starts with uh, Odd Westard, who is a Norwegian historian, who wrote a book called The Global Cold War, which really took into account the sort of planetary uh, havoc that the Cold War put in motion uh, in an attempt to kind of uh, wage this, uh, you know, this kind of uh, wage, kind of uh, hegemonic power, you know, uh, and so on. So, um, So my book is structured around what I see as sites of impact. So. Uh, those sites of impact are the ways in which the Cold War produced a certain kind of postcolonial violence, violence, um, the ways in which the Cold War produced a certain kind of nation within post-colonial places or ruptured uh, the formation of nations as they were about to be formed. And then the second half of the book is really concerned with culture uh, because there, there's the Cold War and then there is this kind of wing of the Cold War, which is soft power which is the Cultural Cold War, um, and um, I'm very interested in some of the interventions uh, that emerged from the Cultural Cold War and ways in which it impacts what we read now, particularly in the United States, um, what we kind of make of the canon of multicultural literature or postcolonial colonial literature, um, and ways in which it also impacts uh, spaces of uh, the internet that we often see as very secular and democratized and free, but I think they're still in the grip of uh, some of the some of this recent politics. So I think that would be the sum.
2: And and so I, the first question I wanted to ask you, and and you've sort of laid out the pieces here um, of what what do you mean by the terminology Cold War assemblages? And, and to some degree, you know, you've, you've sketched out some of the pieces that you are pulling together, um, that are not usually put together. Um, and there's also the sort of temporality of the expected exploration of the Cold War, which is very linear. Um, and so could you talk a little bit about what you mean by Cold War assemblages and, and how these pieces fit together?
1: Uh, yes, I think um, I think one of the strengths of my book is how many different pieces it tries to bring together, and one of the weaknesses of my book is how many pieces it tries to bring together. And I think in attempting to create a kind of cohesive uh, work, um, I struggled to uh, to theoretically kind of place them or align them. Uh, and I had been over the past few years being uh, I was uh, quite influenced by um queer theory, you know, Jessby Poor's book, Terrorist Assemblages, uh also um uh, uh you know black feminist studies and uh you know black studies in general, so Alexander Vahelier's um uh, habeas viscus, which is about uh, race assemblages. So you know, I started to kind of dig dig more into what what this kind of uh, what this framework can offer, and I think um, uh, even though assemblages is actually inherited from um, Deleuze and Guattari, uh, which are sort of esoteric French uh, theorists, it's really been extrapolated and theorized by Manuel Delanda, who has kind of found in it. Uh, a kind of highly functioning, interesting uh, approach that a lot of theorists are attempting to kind of uh, utilize or, uh, or think through. So for me, it primarily um, see, it's, it sets you free from the uh, linear notions of a framework, uh, and it sets you free from uh, a sort of very distinct uh, chronology so part of the idea is that a lot of these pieces may not fit together but they exist in a in in a kind of they exist in kind of symphony with each other in a way that yields a kind of world so i know that sounds um very abstract so in a way it kind of draws it kind of allows for me to collage a lot of bits and pieces it allows for me to take uh, seemingly, con- seemingly contradictory theories such as there is such a thing as a historical continuum, but at the same time, there are such things as epistemic breaks. So when you have these two contradictory ideas, uh, it's hard to place them unless unless we say that, you know, that they they generate a certain world, generate a certain knowledge, but uh, they don't necessarily um, allow for kind of linear interpretation. So I wanted to extend the scope of the Cold War, first of all, uh, which is why I start with Gandhi and Fanon. Uh, Gandhi in uh, primarily is not associated with the Cold War because he died just as it was about, he was assassinated just as it was uh, uh, starting. Uh, and then Fanon also died before he could really say a lot about it. So I've already kind of pushed back in time to kind of think about what the influence of those might be on, on Cold War studies. Uh, and then to kind of enter uh, the the final part, which is the digital part, which is the digital world we now inhabit, uh, I'm also pushing and straining at that end. So assemblages allows me a kind of uh, freedom. Usually, the term is used in uh, art history, of course, uh, and in art, uh, but this is, of course, not that that particular term. It's really allowing for what they say, polyvalent functionality through. Uh, collaging of various pieces and timelines uh, and fields and disciplines uh, to arrive at certain kind of knowledge formation.
2: And that was one of the things that I found really fascinating and, and well constructed in your book was how you were pulling together different disciplinary components as well as the sort of conceptual idea of the Cold War. Um, and you really push on the sort of, here's what we usually think about as the Cold War, but these parts have to be really considered in context because it wasn't just the United States and the USSR or the Warsaw Pact and the NATO alliance, um, which again goes to you know what political scientists and historians often talk about. So you're also saying in the book that you're kind of rethinking post-colonial studies in context of all of these understandings and, and putting on the valence of the Cold War to understand what was going on with regard to post-colonial studies. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw in post-colonial studies and the need to rethink in these in these sort of historical contexts as well?
1: Right. Yeah. So I think that's almost is the starting point in a way, you know, and that is the the core uh, of uh, of, uh, how I came to this, came to thinking about the Cold War. Uh, Postcolonial studies, as I studied it in graduate school, or as, uh, you know, in the form that I'm employed to teach it in, uh, is, um, does not engage with the Cold War. And it's a very odd, and a very strange thing, um, because we see so much of the post-colonial spaces shaped by the violence of the Cold War, by by the weapons flooding of the Cold War, by the proxy wars of the Cold War, by the assassinations of their leaders. Um, and you see that reflected even in the literature. Yet the literature of post-colonial, that post-colonial study privileges um, does not quite um does not quite include that experience and uh this it really became a kind of long think on why that is and part of the part of the uh issue is that post colonial studies really thrives in anglophone uk and the united states it's not uh, it's not that prevalent anywhere else and these were and, and post colonial studies um became a kind of arm of English studies, which is something I discuss in my book um, quite a lot, and in a way was co-opted um, by English studies uh, to become the sort of arm of diversity, you know, uh, within uh, within the university. So um, in a way, over time, it became more and more depoliticized. It became uh, almost bourgeois, you know, and it became the study of kind of... Uh, 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 works that favored postmodern writing and so on, as opposed to kind of uh, the realism of all the socialist realism um, coming out of um, you know the experience of war and violence and political discontent. So, um, so that was part of the intervention: is to put the Cold War back in postcolonial studies and put the postcolonial back into the Cold War. And I trace this through. Uh, the development of area studies um, departments in American universities and also the different magazines that the CIA intervened in uh, from the U.S. to kind of import a certain kind of literature to kind of uh, nourish and sustain a certain type of literature that was uh, less political, less social realist, uh, more kind of watered down modernist and so on. So, um, I think the Cold War and the postcolonial are really hyper connected, but I think to see that connection, one has to really gape at the absence of one and the other
2: and and that was one of the striking things that you point out in the book that I found I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and and and, as you say, you know you have to sort of notice that this is going on, and then once you do, you're kind of like awed by how the disconnection is there. Right.
1: Um, and, and this is actually what's exciting about the cultures of the Global Cold War series, is that uh, we are all alike in that, that thought. These are all literary studies scholars. They all have some training in postcolonial studies, the series editors, I mean. And I think the works they are trying to, uh, they're really trying to fill this gap through this series is my, is my sense, actually.
2: And and so I did want to ask you about this, you know, what you're sort of talking about of the Cold War paradigm, um, which is the sort of second part of the book where you're talking more about the cultural Cold War and and the vestiges that we are still experiencing, you know, in terms of not realizing how much of the Cold War was infused into a variety of areas that we didn't necessarily anticipate.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a monster <laughs> long long chapter um which is a uh, yeah, which is a synthesis of like uh not just thinking theoretically about the post uh, of the post-colonial studies stuff but also um also kind of being in the United States uh being in grad school in the post 9/11 world where there was so much surveillance and kind of intense university politics playing out um and 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 then also running my online magazine where i learned again and again that there is the, that there is a certain kind of taste that is ossified um in the united states there's only a you know the, that the united states might be waging war in afghanistan in iraq but uh and they may have foreign policy interventions everywhere. But the books we read are never going, the books on the bestseller list are never going to reflect that. And how is it that year after year, uh, they don't reflect that? And and part of me is able to locate that uh, in what I call the Cold War paradigm, which was really a very intensive uh, intervention. And and I have to say at the outset that the USSR also had similar interventions, of course. Uh, I, it's just that I don't uh, read or speak Russian, so I didn't study that part of it. I was much more focused on the American um, angle. Um, and uh, essentially, this kind of the, the soft power mechanisms put in place what has come to be called the Cultural Cold War, uh, thanks largely to a lot of archive work done by Frances Stone Saunders uh, in her kind of epic book, uh, which uh, kind of blew the lid on uh, on all these CIA activities of the fifties and sixties, uh, where they had all, over thirty uh, little magazines, small boutique magazines that they uh, they funded and produced and sustained and nourished uh, in various countries uh, in the world, and um, and essentially. It was almost 15 years of uninterrupted sets of interventions through these magazines in all kinds of places from Egypt and Lebanon to uh, Uganda, Nigeria, uh, India, uh, Japan, everywhere, really. Uh, and, I, and what I wanted to say in the Cold War uh, paradigm chapter was that they kind of created a certain framework that we still abide by. And even though the, the CIA was found out, even though these uh, these initiatives were um, found out and exposed in, in the late 60s, uh, we still remain in the kind of grip of this. And part of it is that for about, you know, uh, about two decades, these magazines cultivated a set of practices that have become very familiar to us. Um, some of them were more draconian, like they were direct intervention, if a If a magazine, for example, wasn't publishing, was publishing too much communist or socialist kind of leaning work, uh, somebody would fly in and try to change the kind of editorial masthead. So those were lesser, there are lesser examples of that. The bigger examples are the more indirect interventions. And the indirect interventions meant um, uh, rewarding and uh, republishing and cross publishing certain authors that fit a, a kind of liberal liberal left agenda a non communist liberal left agenda uh, which you know some other writers some other scholars have also referred to as a kind of watered down apolitical uh, modernism so um, over time this became the kind of style this is what we've come to Acknowledge is is great writing. It's not icky. It's not overly political. It's it's stylistic. Um, it's uh, you know it's not kind of um, um, what can I say? It's not on the nose. Um, and and this kind of synthesized and certain structures we put in place and publishing and so on that we have now inherited uh, a way of reading and a way of thinking um that comes out of this time and uh, and certainly this formula of cross publishing uh, certain types of awards what are the criteria for the awards uh, was very much put in place by these um, by these people and a lot of powerful intellectuals that uh, advertently or inadvertently were kind of supporting uh, this movement you see what i'm saying
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify
2: Um, in the journals, but also the way that it sort of made its way into literature departments and English departments throughout the Anglophone world, but particularly in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about how that sort of Cold War perspective and capacity Sort of made its way in, and we're still, as you say, we're still sort of in that context, even though, even though the Cold War is already theoretically already over,
1: right? Um, So, I mean, you know, there is actually quite a lot of very open uh, scholarship on ways in which the Cold War infiltrated universities, and essentially, uh, and that's very clear to us, right? We want, uh, uh, you know, more nuclear technology or uh, certain communication propaganda uh, me- mechanisms had to be solidified so uh, the you know the intelligence agencies the us government sought scholars who could provide information uh, in various countries who who would of course be have great scientific minds um, and so on so i think that that aspect of the cold war and the university um, uh, is very clear in, uh, but but you know something like english which is often perceived as a very passive sort of uh area of study you know poetry and sort of pastoral um uh, it's it's less understood why why um why the cold war would infiltrate there and i think the i think it's it's really complicated and i think part of the thing is that there is a mix of things so as we have uh english departments in the 50s and 60s becoming kind of retreating into a pastoral uh, uh in, into a pastoral backdrop you know uh not not aligning themselves so much with political thinking political writing you then have a kind of eruption in the us with vietnam uh, of all these protests feminists feminism civil rights and so on and those things kind of come together and what happens as a solution uh to how to accommodate all these new identities is to create area studies departments which is something that the cold war had already put in motion so you then end up having like ethnic studies african american studies tibetan studies asian studies and so on so everything ends up in these silos and and then english kind of returns to its more uh, you know what it's supposed to be doing which is to read literature to close read literary texts um, to 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 kind of stay away from very political um, activity, and then the kind of um, you know the the divestment from social sciences becomes even more apparent. And I think you know all of this in a way. At this point, when we think of area studies, uh, we think of them as doing some of the greatest, most amazing work, and they do all the innovative work. They do all the mixing of disciplines, interdisciplinarity, and so on. But uh the truth is, um you know uh we still exist in silos, and that's that's part of what we have inherited, i think from the from the Cold War. It's still hard um to find interdisciplinary work that's really um can synthesize all these various methodologies and ways of looking at the world in a kind of um, um you know in in a way that can think of it as all kind of productive collusion between these various disciplines. So I think that's part of the, you know, and if you think about it now, you you know, you think about all the push towards STEM and so on, and then humanities, uh, basically departments of languages, humanities departments, like essentially begging to survive. I mean, these silos have, um, you know, have been put in place, and we are just unable to shake them off, I think. I don't know if that answers your question, but.
2: And the the siloing is is as you're sort of saying is is kind of a vestige of what has been happening during this period mm-hmm. of of sort of um, you know you econ- economists will study ec- economics and you political scientists will study politics and you in literature will study Milton and Shakespeare right. um, and and never your paths shall meet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, I taught for years at um, Baruch College, which are primarily business students. It's a college of the City University, and uh, it was during the time where Iraq was being invaded by the U.S. and so on. And if I, as much as wanted to talk about, you know, let's let's read something that relates to what's going on outside. Let's let's think about this war. They, you know, they would always say, a "War is good for the economy." You know, where you know you don't understand that you're just English, <laughs> so but yeah
2: um and and you talk a, a lot in the first part of the book about political violence um which you also note is much more afflicting the the post-colonial countries the ones that were sort of moving towards independence or moved towards independence during this cold war period and that's where as you know as we know proxy wars were being fought But also you talk about the fact that there were um, assassinations that are transpiring, that there are that are sort of new nations were immediately moving into civil war. And you talk about this also in terms of the political theory around what's going on. Can you speak a little bit about this concept of political violence as it was also being experienced?
1: Mm -hmm. Um i think the the concern for me is the sort of interrupted decolonization uh which is which is really what happens so as we move towards these countries where the uprisings revolutions anti colonial movements are coming to a head and they um and these countries are on their way to gain um, freedom become nations, and so on and you know they're already going to have a host of infrastructural issues that come with that. Uh, but then along comes the Cold War and this attempt to sway hearts and minds, to assert superiority. Um, and what the US and the USSR do is really interrupt a process of uh, transfer of power, the process of decolonization. Um, and I think the way I was looking at it through two two main lenses. One was um one was I was looking at actual assassinations that that were Cold War plots, uh, and ways in which those uh, very young, uh, dynamic leaders that were about to uh, lead this nation into potentially success uh, were 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 hacked down at at such a young age, and in a way that it kind of uh, with the with the with the death of the leader died the dream of a kind of. Um, linear peaceful trajectory for the nation so that was one thing and the other i mean the other thing about political violence was also ways in which uh, certain revolutionary theory is embedded with a kind of uh, failure or a flaw partially because um, partially because the grip of the cold war the the uh, the waning days of colonialism all of these things conspire to um, put the revolutionary thinker, who's a thinker and a leader at the same time, in a in a very tight bind. And I think that bind causes for a certain very urgent thinking around, uh, you know, uses, misuses of violence, what is peace, what is nation, all of those things, creating a kind of scramble of ideas that eventually does harm uh, to the post-colony. And um, part of me was saying that This decolonization is interrupted, one, because of some of these leaders' inability really to mitigate these very extraordinary forces, Uh, and thus those countries then falling into uh, material and political as well as kind of uh, cultural violence. And then... um, and then the other aspect of the interpreted decolonization is, is the actual killing of leaders and putting in place dictators and so on, you know, a tactic that we've come to see as familiar, you know, uh, in, the, in, the, in the game of power. Uh, but these were the days when that was being perfected uh, at the end of the day. So I think those are, that's how I kind of conceive of uh, how the political violence becomes really embedded in these post-colonial places.
2: And and I wanted to, to talk to you a little bit in that context about a term that you talk about in your book called nation time, um, because I think this is connected to, as you're sort of talking about the capacity to lead and conceptualize leadership simultaneously um, and what the nation needs to do or what a, a nation needs to do. And this is, again, sort of put into this linear context Um, that we're so used to thinking about when we think about the Cold War, that there were these points in it along the way Um, when the United States did this or the Russians, the Soviets did this or, you know, another ally did something. The tanks rolled into the Czechoslovakia. Um, But I really would love for you to talk a little bit about this understanding of this idea of nation time.
1: Right. Um. Yeah. So I think um, uh, you know this chapter was uh, quite important to me, and I felt quite emotional in a way writing it as it uh, as it came to me because I was looking at uh, three very beloved uh, revolutionary figures, at least for people who are excited by African studies: Patrice Lumumba, Amilcar Cabral, uh, and Thomas Sankara. And uh, I was trying to understand their uh, their contributions, but also their assassination, and trying to really encas- encapsulate uh, uh, what was going on within the frame of, of, of the Cold War period. Um, and the insight, really, um, about the question of temporality or thinking about time in this way comes from uh, queer theory, which which has where there's a lot of emphasis on the idea of queer time, uh, which is which is which is an alternate time uh, that has to always deal with kind of, um, uh, you know, um, mainstream time. We have a certain conception of the way in which time works, uh, the way in which what you're supposed to do at what age, what you do at this stage, how you go forward, what is the past, how you go backward. And um, uh, the idea of queer temporality really problematizes this. Um, and I wanted to apply some of those ideas, uh, what happens when time is is broken, time is appropriated, when time really truly goes out of joint um, in these in these spaces so And what I kind of um, came to was thinking about the thinking about the way in which um, time has always been a big factor in in uh, in dominating uh, people. So there's a, quite a lot written on colonialism and the ways in which time was uh, very essential to always tell people, "You're backward, you've not yet entered present time. You live in an anterior time." So that was very, uh, that was a very key tactic in creating a kind of inferiority complex that comes out of uh, that you know colonialism instilled and, and nourished in a way. And one of the big tasks for these leaders was to actually have their people uh, have their polity really uh, feel that they have entered history, that they have come into time, that they're ready for something. So a lot of these speeches of these leaders are these kind of feverish, impassioned speeches about the time is now, the time is urgent, the time is uh, right here, et cetera, et cetera. So I was looking at at, at, at that and I think, at this while they while these leaders were kind of offering correctives on colonial time trying to generate a sense of an urgent time uh, the cold war was working to kind of um uh, you know end their time you know to to say it very simply so in a way these young young men who were killed at such young ages just in the middle of doing this crucial work uh, had begun to symbolize uh, their nation and where their nation was headed. So, kind of killing them was killing off the time of the nation, and then it left the nation in a huge disarray. And most of these countries haven't really recovered from it. And certainly, Congo uh, is, is deep in, deeply in the grip of all kinds of problems. You know, we would say the same for Cabral's uh, uh, Guinea-Bissau and also Sankara's Burkina Faso. So. Nation time was taken away. The trajectory was broken um, by killing these leaders and, and, and killing off that trajectory uh, killed off a kind of uh, dream of nation that, that the price is still being paid for that in a way.
2: And, and so in this context, we sort of see these, these nations, in particular the ones that you study in the book, as being, as you say, in kind of a ruptured time um that they that they are you know that they are they're still rife with violence as well as the fact that they are not you know quote moving forward um but the the sort of forwardness is again a kind of um developed nation perspective it being applied to other other concepts and other places um i wanted to ask you about the digital um, and, you know, the sort of concluding aspects of the book itself that we are still, as you note, sort of living in the, the remnants of this Cold War space. Um, and how does this affect our understanding of what we have access to digitally?
1: Right. Um, I would have loved to write more uh, on this topic, but uh, I ended up, um, you know, just kind of doing a longish section uh, at the end. And part of it is just trying to illustrate a continuation of what I kept calling the Cold War uh, paradigm. And the Cold War paradigm essentially put in place um, a certain type of a uh, writing, a certain type of politics of prestige. What's pres- What's a prestigious author? What's a prestigious book? versus what isn't. Um, and even though we think of the internet through other lenses, we think of the the realm of the digital. Uh, we often critique the realm of the digital through uh, by saying that it's a kind of unbridled kind of uh, almost like you know the frontier of capitalist corporate uh, entities. And I think that's absolutely accurate. Uh, but I've also run an online magazine for a long time. Uh, that was trying to put more marginalized voices out there, you know, literary, poetic, uh, and so on. And um, one finds again and again some of the same uh, Cold War networks in place, um, such as, uh, you know, the same kind of journals um, and, and, and magazines that allow for us to believe X or Y work, is uh, is prestigious is worthy of attention? Those are the only ones that are going to end up on sort of Wikipedia. They have these kind of notorious notability criterias. you know uh, so even though we feel we' are part of something uh, secular and and freeing, uh, at the end of the day, um, a kind of high high realm of uh, fame. Uh, dissemination, distribution is really reserved for the same old types of literature, for example. So uh, I, I look primarily uh, at at the way some of the um, Wikipedia things work, uh, ways in which you can't get an obscure uh, or a very hyper-political small magazine to end up with a Wikipedia entry. If you don't have a Wikipedia entry, you're not really super legitimate, you know. So, and the same kind of algorithms work with Google for the search engine optimization, uh, also with Amazon, high searchability, you know, cross-posting, cross-publishing. And in the end, we continue to consume the same types of uh, work. We continue to consume works that are not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, uh, super international in nature, Uh, highly critical of the U.S. and so on and so forth. So it kind of just perpetuates and perpetuates itself. So I would say that uh, the Cold War is not a totalizing way of understanding the digital because there's just so much more there. And it's a kind of later stage, you know, it's post-Cold War, really. Um, But uh, but there's something in there. And I would like to, uh, of course, do more on it in the future. uh, But I kind of touch on it uh, for now. So my next
2: question then for you is: What is it that you're working on now that you finished this wonderful Cold <laughs> War assemblages, and that yeah. you're so intrigued by parts of it still? But I I think that there may be other things that you're paying attention to.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, there were a couple of uh, projects. Um, well, one was I was working on this idea of uh, uh, digitality, but uh, specifically as it impacts uh, cultural production in. Uh, Africa. Um, But I think, uh, you know, those are turning more into articles and so on. So it may not end up being a book, as I wished, uh, which is, you know, it was essentially the idea being that um, the digital kind of, you know, generates a space for very radical, exciting ideas, and it can end up radicalizing people very fast, uh, and educating them very fast. But at the same time, it can dilute certain histories and certain ideas at the same time so we we end up with a very diluted version of uh, radical thoughts so um that was one project but i think it's it's it and it was supposed to be a book but it may end up being uh, more a set of articles and the thing that's um, exciting to me at the moment uh, partially because um i uh, you know through my online magazine we just published our first uh, Co-edited anthology, which was about uh, the so-called migration crisis. So, looking at uh, migrant experiences, uh, and the book is called Mediterranean Migrant Crossings, and it and it looks essentially at uh, African Arab um, uh, migrant experiences through the lens of poetry, through the lens of uh, literature, art, etc., etc. So, I think I may be continuing uh, my interest in that work and my distress at, uh, at, at the condition of migrants and what's happening as they try to cross in boats or as they try to come through, through the borders, uh, uh, in, 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 in the South, in the U S and, um, I'm trying to kind of figure out a way to think more about this. I have a Fulbright coming up, uh, in Kenya and I will be working primarily, uh, with some of the intra-African migration that, uh, You know, as you know, Kenya has a couple of very large refugee camps. So I'm going to see what is the kind of cultural literary production coming out of those spaces and see if there's a book project there or something new to be done. I hope that when you do
2: determine the book project that you'll come (laughs) on and speak to me about it again. Of course. Thank you. It's my pleasure to have you on today. Bhakti Sringarpura who is the author of Cold War Assemblages, Decolonialization to Digital. And this is part of Rutledge's Studies in Cultures of the Global Cold War and was published by Rutledge Press in 2019. Um, I assume one can get a hold of this book at the usual places as well as Rutledge's website. Is that
1: correct? Yes. Thank you so much. Yes, it's currently in hardcover and there will be a paperback in about a year. I think.
2: Great. Thanks so much for joining me today, Bhakti.
1: Thank you so much, Lily. Look forward to hearing this podcast.